Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1? Paul left Titus on the island of Crete, as it says in verse 5, to set the churches in order. And that has to begin at the top. It has to begin with godly leadership. It has to begin with the appointment of elders, overseers, pastors who meet the qualifications. And perhaps the most important qualification is the last one that he gives in verse 9. They are to be men of the Word who can both exhort those who listen and refute those who contradict. That's what shepherding the flock is all about. It's feeding the sheep sound, healthy doctrine and it's protecting the sheep from predators. You say, well, why do we need leaders like that? Look at verse 10. For or because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. You need godly men who are holding to the Word because there are ungodly men out there who are teaching things they should not teach. It didn't take long for false teachers to arise in the early church. Wherever God sows truth, Satan shows up to sow his lies. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders and he predicted that false teachers would come after his departure. Here we are about six or seven years later and he writes both to Timothy in Ephesus and to Titus in Crete to say they are here. And false teachers were not to be taken lightly. Paul calls them savage wolves in Acts 20, 29. And the problem with wolves is that they're sometimes hard to spot. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, they wear sheep's clothing. And so he writes here to Titus and to the elders that he would appoint in the cities there and to us to know how to recognize these false teachers and how to deal with them. And so he points out three things in verses 10 to 16. Their characteristics, their clientele, and their contradictions. First of all, their characteristics in verses 10 and 11. And in these two verses, we see five characteristics. Number one, their number, verse 10. For there are many. Wolves were not an endangered species in Crete, they were prevalent. There were many of them. You know, it's interesting that Paul wrote to Timothy at this same time, and he doesn't use this same adjective in 1 Timothy. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, he warns Timothy about certain men who are teaching strange doctrines. Now, the inference there is that there were many false teachers in Crete. There were only certain false teachers in Ephesus. Why was that? Well, it may have been because Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus teaching night and day there. And he laid such a foundation of the truth in the city of Ephesus that it was difficult for false teachers to make any inroads. That was not true in Crete. They had not had a lot of solid leadership or teaching, and so they had many false teachers. Second characteristic is their nature. And their nature is described three different ways in verse 10. 
First of all, it says they are rebellious men. They are the very antithesis of God's leader who in verse 7 must not be self-willed. These men were self-willed. They refused to submit to authority. They wanted everyone to listen to them, but they didn't want to listen to anybody. Not God, not His Word, not His apostles, not His teachers, not His leaders. They were rebellious. Second, they were empty talkers. Have you ever heard an empty talker? They were talking, and they were often captivating and persuasive and smooth and clever, but he says their words were empty. Like Shakespeare said, they are full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. They may be entertaining, they may be intellectually stimulating, their speculations may be fascinating. You may go away from listening to them and say, wow, that was impressive. But when you weigh what they say against the Word of God, it's empty. There are certain preachers on television that I can listen to, and I'm amazed that they can talk so long and say so little. There's no content. There's no substance. They are empty talkers. And then thirdly, he says, they are deceivers in verse 10. False teachers don't wear name tags. They don't announce their intentions. They pretend to be something they're not. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15 that they wear sheep's clothing. They pretend to be sheep. They pretend to be believers. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, they are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're not only disguising themselves as sheep, they are disguising themselves as the servants of God who are sent out by Him. And Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 1, there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. And so they deceive. They deceitfully call themselves Christians. They deceitfully call themselves servants of God. And they deceitfully bring in lies. People often ask me if false teachers know that they're deceiving people. That's a good question. The Bible has an interesting answer to that question. The Bible answers that question yes and no. And the verse to back that up is 2 Timothy 3.13 where it says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They are deceiving others, but they are also being deceived by who? By Satan who is pretending to be something he's not. Jesus said about him in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that he is a liar and the father of lies. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so when it comes to deceit, these false teachers have the best teacher. In fact, he's so good that he's actually deceiving them. And then thirdly, we see their message. The end of verse 10 says, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach. Now, what is it that they were teaching? 
Well, I think we get a hint from the last part of verse 10 where it says they are especially those of the circumcision. They were Jews. And the seed of this false teaching we find back in Acts chapter 15 where some in Jerusalem were insisting that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and they had to keep the ceremonial law in order to be saved. And so the message of these false teachers was legalism. They were adding to the gospel. They were saying that you can work your way to heaven. And that is always built in to false teaching. In fact, look at a verse with me. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul says, Even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says, If I do it, if an angel comes down from heaven and preaches to you a contrary gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Now, what is the false gospel? What is this contrary gospel that he's talking about? Well, he explains it in the book of Galatians. In fact, look at chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did the Spirit come and take up residence in your life because you were moving along, obeying the law, and God said, well, he's doing really good. I think I'll give him my Spirit. Or did you receive the Spirit? Did He come into your life to take up residence at the moment that you heard the gospel and believed? Well, that was the point. And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you think that the Spirit just got you up on your feet so you could climb your way to heaven by good works? No. That's foolishness. Salvation is all the work of the Spirit of God. It's all by faith. It's not faith plus works. It's faith alone. And that faith plus works is the contrary gospel that Paul says is anathema. In fact, look over at chapter 5 of Galatians and verse 2. The false teachers were saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul says in verse 2, Behold, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Paul says it's an either-or proposition. You can't have both. You can't trust in Christ and trust in yourself. You can't stand in grace and stand in the law. And then he says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you choose circumcision, you are placing yourself under the law and there's only one way to be saved under the law. And what is that? To keep every single law perfectly. So he says if you choose circumcision, you are placing yourself in legalism and there's only one way to achieve in legalism and that is perfection. And then he says in verse 4, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You know, falling from grace is a very misunderstood phrase. Most people hear that phrase, and to them it means that if you fall below a certain standard of conduct, there's a trap door, and you will fall out of the family of God. You know, if if you get below that standard, we don't know what that standard is, but if you get below it, you just kind of fall out of the family of God. 
You know, you've got you to keep a C average in your Christian life to keep your scholarship. But see, that's not what it means at all. In fact, that is the very opposite of what it means. Because if you look in verse 4, who is it that falls from grace? It's the person who seeks to be justified by law. So you don't fall from grace into sin. You fall from grace into legalism. Grace is God's unmerited favor that takes me to heaven for no reason. And I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I can only appreciate it. That's God's grace. When I step into legalism, I am saying, God, I'm going to help you out and I'm going to work my way to heaven. And he says, that's falling from grace. You see, it's either or. You can't mix law and grace. And anybody who tries to is a false teacher. You see, that's their message. Then come back to Titus chapter 1. We see their fourth characteristic. And that is their method in verse 11. It says they are upsetting whole families. They are turning families upside down. Which suggests that they are peddling their false teaching house to house. They are working their way into families and they're upsetting the whole family. Which is still a tactic of the cults today, isn't it? Go door to door. Get involved with a family member. Reach the whole family. Turn them upside down. In 2 Timothy 3, 6, Paul says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. What do they do? They sneak into households and they go after the weak. What do wolves do? They always attack those on the fringe of the flock or the herd. They always look for the wounded and the weak. And that's the same method of false teachers. And then the fifth characteristic is their motive at the end of verse 11. They are teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Why would anybody want to be a false teacher? Well, we've already given half of the answer. They are deceived. The other half is that it pays. They are more concerned about what they can get out of people than what they can give to people. And so there are their characteristics. Their number, many. Their nature, rebellious, empty-talking deceivers. Their message, legalism, faith plus works. Their method, door-to-door reaching households. Their motive, money. Now what's to be done about these false teachers? Well, look at verse 11. They must be silenced. There is no freedom of speech in the church. If you speak false teaching, you are to be silenced. Now, how do you silence them? Well, let me suggest three ways. Number one, proclaim the truth. When Satan came to Jesus with his lies in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? He quoted Scripture. He proclaimed truth, and it says the devil left him. In Matthew chapter 22, it says the Sadducees and Pharisees came to Jesus. They brought questions to trap Him and to promote their false teaching. You know what Jesus did? Four times in that passage, He quoted Scripture. He proclaimed the truth. And it's interesting what it says after that. In Matthew 22, 34, it says, He put the Sadducees to silence. And then the last verse in that chapter says, 
No one dared from that day on to ask him another question. He proclaimed the truth and silenced their falsehood. Second way we silence their falsehood is to live the truth. We can actually silence false teachers by holy living. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Your behavior representing the Lord silences false teachers. You say, well, what if I proclaim the truth and live the truth and they're still not silent? Well, that's where the leaders of the church come in. And the third thing is they need to be confronted. Chapter 1 and verse 9 says of elders that they have to be able to refute those who contradict. That word refute means to correct. They are to correct them. And the way they do it is described in 2 Timothy 2.25. It says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. They are to be corrected gently with the goal of repentance. You say, well, what if they're corrected gently and they don't listen? Well, then that's chapter 3 of Titus in verse 10. It says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. After he's refuted, then he's to be warned once and then twice. And then the third step, it says, is to reject him. Now, I'm not sure how extensive that is, but it certainly entails taking away any teaching responsibility, not giving him the opportunity to do so. And then there's a fourth step in Scripture, and that is to remove him. Paul describes that in 1 Timothy 1.20, when he says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There's the characteristics of false teachers. Paul wants us to recognize who they are so that they can be silenced. Second, we see the clientele of false teachers in verses 12 to 14. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, Paul quotes from a Cretan philosopher and poet by the name of Epimenides, who lived around 600 B.C. He obviously was not real impressed with his countrymen. He says they are always Liars. They are compulsive, habitual liars. They are evil beasts, savage and cruel, and they are lazy gluttons, allergic to work and addicted to food. And Paul says, verse 13, this testimony is true. Paul says, Epimenides is one Cretan who is telling the truth when he says that all Cretans lie. That's a true statement. Now, when Paul says this, this is not politically correct, but it is morally correct. Cicero, the Roman orator, illustrated the moral depravity of the Cretans by saying this, Cretans are so bad that they consider highway robbery to be honorable. And the word to cretinize was used at that time throughout the Roman Empire as a synonym for a person who lied. And so here are the false teachers in Crete and their clientele are these people on the moral bottom rung 
of the ladder. Which tells you that Titus didn't have a whole lot of raw material to work with. But you know, I like the fact that Paul doesn't say, give up on them. Paul says in verse 13, For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. Reprove means to convict or correct. The word severely means to cut. You are to convict them or correct them with a deep cut. Like surgery. You are to cut into them to bring about a good end. And that end is described two ways, positively and negatively. First of all, positively at the end of verse 13. Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. That word sound we saw last week in verse 9. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word hygienic, healthy. They are to be cut with conviction so that they will be healthy in relationship to the faith, the gospel which these false teachers are attacking. And then negatively, verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. They are to be cut with correction so that they will no longer pay attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Now the Jews at that time were into a lot of allegory. They would go to the Old Testament and read stories and then they would jump off with interpretations that would just be out of their imagination. They were also into numerology. They, they associated certain numbers with the Hebrew letters and then they would find a word and find out what its number was and they'd jump off explaining some. For instance, in, in Genesis, the name Abram added up to 318, and one of their conclusions was that that meant he had 318 servants. And so they jumped into allegory, and, and Paul refers to it as Jewish myths. It's just their imagination. And then he also mentions the commandments of men. These were the commandments of these false teachers that they were enforcing about clean and unclean food, about special days, about ceremonial defilement. And he says you are positively to get into sound doctrine. Negatively, you are turn away from these things, from these men who have turned from the truth. And so Titus and the elders were not only to silence the false teachers, they were to reprove their clientele. And then thirdly, we see the contradictions of the false teachers in verses 15 and 16. And Paul points out two contradictions here. The first is the internal contradiction. The false teachers were saying, in order to be pure, you have to eat pure food, no pork. In order to be pure, you have to, not, you have to touch pure things. You can't touch dead bodies because you'll become impure. In order to be pure, you have to keep the Sabbath and the feast days and all the ceremonial laws. Paul says, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, who are the pure? Well, the pure are those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, He gave Himself for us that, we might, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. He paid the price so that we might be pure. And so the pure are believers. And he says, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, that's not a comprehensive all things. You have to take that in the context. Don't think that he's saying here, anything goes. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm pure, so all things are pure. 
This all things doesn't include things that the Bible says is sin. In fact, the parallel idea is in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. And I'd like you to just look over there to get the context. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul wrote this letter at the very same time and he's writing to Timothy about false teachers. And in verse 3 he says, They are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. What's he talking about? He's talking about the food that he talked about in verse He's talking about marriage, those things that God has given that are good and right. To the pure, all things are pure. To believers, there are no things ceremonially that will make you impure. Everything is pure. Everything is available to you. But coming back to Titus chapter 1, in contrast to that in verse 15, he says, But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. To the believer, all things are pure. To the unbeliever, nothing is pure. doesn't matter how many religious observances they keep. Those religious observances are not going to cleanse your mind and your conscience. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15, 11. He said, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. You see, what you take in as food is not going to defile you. You get defiled by what's coming out from within in your heart. And so these false teachers were hung up about unclean foods. And Paul says they've got a bigger problem. They've got an unclean heart. They are a walking contradiction. Despite all their talk about purity, they are defiled. And then he mentions a second contradiction. And that is an external contradiction in verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Jesus said of false teachers in Matthew 7, 16, You will know them by their fruits. And though these men profess to know God, their deeds tell another story. He says they are detestable, that means loathsome and disgusting. They are disobedient. They're all hung up about obeying their own commandments. They have disregarded the commands of God. And they are worthless. That means they are unfit for doing anything good. They have no capacity for good. They are a walking contradiction inside and outside. Now, this is not a real uplifting passage. And as I studied it this week, I was thinking, you know, this is just probably not going to brighten anybody's day. It's kind of a downer. It's, it's, It's kind of negative. It's even kind of troubling. You say, well, why would Paul include all these details about false teachers? You know, I read Little Red Riding Hood this week. The 1908 edition. I don't know if that's the original or not. But I was kind of surprised at how scary it was. In fact, as I read it, I thought, I would never read this to a little child. Because Granny gets eaten early on, and and then Little Red Riding Hood almost gets eaten, and then the foresters come in with Little Red Riding Hood's dad, and they cut the wolf's head off with axes, and then they tie him to a pole, and they carry him through the woods. I mean, it's PG stuff. 
But I was reading the story. I got to the end of the story, and it added this. It said, when the children were told the story, it was always with this word of warning. When you are sent on an errand, go right along and do it as quickly as you can. Do not stop to play on the road or to make friends with strangers who may turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And the children always promised to remember, and they shuddered whenever they thought of what might have been the fate of dear little Red Riding Hood. Well, that's Paul's purpose here as well. He wants us to shudder and beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage that shows us a snapshot of false teachers. Father, help us to be faithful, to be a church with leaders who hold to your word, who teach your truth, who build up in sound doctrine, be people who are turning away from the myths and the commandments of men. And Lord, that we might honor you and please you as a church that serves you obediently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.